Hi, Jakob. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. What was your first computer? Uh, my first computer was um, was a Commodore 128. Okay. And, but I Whoa. mostly used I mostly used it in um, in Commodore 64 mode uh, because of, we were just kids, so we we mostly used it for gaming, right? For playing games. So. Were there no games for 128? There were, but not as many. Okay. Not as many as uh, for the C64. So it was a bit hard to get the. 128 games. I watched a game, the Commodore 128, and it was something with uh, martial arts in, in in Japan. And this was this looked actually amazing. This is what I remember. I, I forgot the name, but this was actually a great, great name. So I, I just wanted, you know, to, to see. I'd never had a Commodore 128, but um, yeah, I watched a game. I remember until now, and uh, it was amazing for that time. Yeah, I remember. Was it international uh, karate, and uh, then there was uh, the, there was the, the way of the exploding fist, something like this, I guess. So where you walked, you know, through a beautiful landscapes, and then something. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that was maybe the last ninja, probably. Yeah, I think so. So you are an expert, I see already. <laughs> <coughs> so when you stopped actually playing and started, you know, do something different than games. Um, I think that started, I started programming, I think about a year after. So after we got the computer, uh, mm-hmm. but back then it was mostly basic. And uh, as far as I remember, the uh, Commodore 128 had um, had some kind of graphics capabilities built into this basic language and also sound. So it was it was possible to draw graphics on the screen and also to, um, to play sounds mm-hmm. um, through the programming language. So... I spent some time doing that, and I remember my big brother also spent some time doing that as well. But he's not—he's not doing uh, working with computers today. Right now. Okay, but why you stop gaming and started to you know with that? I—I I guess I was interested in—I was fascinated by the you know the ability to control the computer. I guess mm-hmm. maybe maybe one day create my own games or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that time, there were too many things I did not know how to do. So, you know, most of my programs would run and they would be completely, you know, without any input from the outside world. So very predictable and, and mm-hmm. therefore a little bit boring. Okay. So uh, what was the highest achievement back then? You know, basic 128 Commodore programming achievement. So, you know, the most cool, the, the coolest or, you know, the mo- most complicated piece of software you've wrote on the Commodore. I think... On that one, I mostly I think just some of these graphics uh, mm-hmm. programs that were drawing graphics on the screen. Yeah. So no, nothing, nothing too advanced. Mm-hmm. What What happened then? Then uh, after that, um, the uh, Commodore Amiga 500 was released, and of course, at some point, I had to get that one. And once I had the Amiga 500. I, uh, at some point, of course, I started with the games, and at, mm-hmm. at some point, I also started seeing these uh, demos. And so, of course, I uh, after after some time, I got completely sucked into uh, trying to do demo programming. So I wanted to learn um, assembly language instead of uh, Amiga Basic uh, in order to control the computer more. So I spent a lot of time with that. I also managed to program some simple graphical effects that you know such as scroll text and sinus scroll text and and like some kind of um, like zoom and blurring effects and, and simple 3d graphics as well but uh, I was at that point I was not able to uh, to put it together into like a coherent uh, demo 
so why there was still I was still missing uh, some some tools for like structuring a, a big application or mm-hmm. something like that, and also with, with these bootloaders and all that stuff. So demos were more or less like movies, right? Yeah, they were like um, yeah, like like a computer music video, where just uh, programmers showing off their skills. Okay, and how much time you spend with it? So like you know, that's a good question. Uh, because it interests me, you know, how how persistent you were back then, you know, just you know to to achieve something interesting. Um, well, persistent enough to to spend to do that over some years, and uh, I guess oh. I was I was maybe spending some some hours every uh, at least some hours every week, mm-hmm. just programming and and trying to learn how the uh, computer was designed inside, and you know. Cool. With the Amiga, you also had to program the graphics chips, so mm-hmm. that would that was like you write some some numbers into a specific address, and then you would write into like th- three or four or five or six addresses. I cannot remember how many. And then I think when you wrote into the last of these addresses, then that would trigger the the graphics chips to to start mm-hmm. doing something. Sounds like you know fun because if you you know. If you uh, provide, you know, the wrong addresses, nothing will happen, or the computer will crash. I can imagine. <laughs> we had a lot of. I, I was. I programmed also with some friends, but we uh, we had a lot of uh, crashes where the computer would just completely uh, stop functioning, and you would have to reboot the computer. Right? Mm-hmm. At at that time, the assembly the uh, the assembly uh, the assembly language editors that we were using. Mm-hmm. They would keep the assembly language directly in memory. So mm-hmm. if you forgot to save it to disk, yeah. and you you would execute it and uh, and it crashed the computer, then your program was lost. So that was a little bit. Uh, so I had that static spectrum, but I also enjoyed saving. So you know, save to tape the yeah. basic, and this was surprisingly fast because it was just a a little bit of text. So a game loading was a completely different dimension. Um, Interesting. So this was, uh, I think, uh, sixty-eight thousand, right? Uh, this was the assembly you used. Sixty-eight thousand, yeah. yeah. Incredible. Motorola. How old were you back then? Or young? Um, I was uh, a teenager. Um, okay. Probably in my it was around fifteen or so, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Okay, not bad for uh, assembler. Eighteen, and then I started. Yeah, and then at some point. Uh, the, the PCs, they started becoming so fast that it got a little bit boring to keep programming on the Amiga 500. <laughs> so you switched from Amiga 500 directly to a PC? I did, um, I did that once I started studying. I started com- studying uh, computer science, and then I needed a computer for mm-hmm. uh, to, to do all the uh, programming homework on. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was uh, most of the courses would use Pascal, and, and for that, I... I didn't need a PC, but uh, it would it was obvious or easiest to just get a PC and get uh, Ball and Pascal installed, and then I could maybe do my homework. You enjoyed Pascal? It was okay. It it reminded me of uh, of um, of Basic, right? mm-hmm. so it was very similar to Basic, I think. Um, but, but I think Pascal it, had already functions, right, or or, or methods. The uh, Basic there was just go to and go sub. At least in my Basic. That's true. That's true. That's true. So, yeah. So. Pascal had functions, but and it had the limitation that the functions had to be defined mm-hmm. uh, earlier than when you called them. Yeah. So, like from you had to define all your functions at the top of the program, and then you had to like have the main part of of your program at the bottom of the of the source code. 
And I think in later versions of, of Pascal, or at least the ball and Pascal that we had, it was actually possible to switch to assembly language, inline, uh, to just do inline, inline assembly language. Yeah. Not bad. So, so at that point, then I started studying PC assembly language. And then uh, I also did some graphical effects with, with that. But um, I have no experience. I had a little bit of experience with uh, 68000, but not for with Intel assembly. But what I was told is that the Intel assembly is not as beautiful as the 68000. No. And I think one of the reasons for that is the register layout of, of, the, mm -hmm. of the Intel chips. Uh, mm -hmm. So you would need, wherein, you know, in the 68000, you had 32-bit uh, registers. Mm -hmm. And in, in, uh, in the Intel chips, you had only... 16-bit registers at the time. So you had to combine two registers to get a 32-bit mm -hmm. um, reference. And so at the time, once you needed to address memory and all that stuff, the addresses, because you had, of course, more than 64 kilobytes of memory in a PC, mm -hmm. then you would need to combine two registers to, to create a full address. Okay. So that was a little bit more uh, clumsy in some ways. Uh, I mm -hmm. But I haven't done a lot of assembly in a long time, so I don't know what it's like today. And why you did it still was the demo scene? You wanted to create another it was, movie. It was still the, the demo scene, yeah. And that was what I thought was fun. Mm -hmm. And then also, as part of that, I developed um, this interest in optimizing ah. code. Because, of course, the faster you can get your code to run, the more smooth your graphical effects can run. Right? The, okay. the, the more frames per second you can have. Then. And that kind of stuck with me until today. I still oh. like to optimize code today. Okay, so I'm the opposite. I, I like to optimize code if it makes sense. Otherwise, I don't care. No, it's fast enough. It's like, okay, simple first. And then if it doesn't work, then I would like to optimize. This seems like we would have you know, together fun in a project. There will be constant you know, fight between... <laughs> Simple suboptimal code and uh, fast yeah. code. Yeah, I think that is. I think that is a. It's a difficult. I think I don't know if it's if it's a, if it's a debate or discussion. But in some ways, it seems like many of the. Um, I think was it Martin Thompson that said that that uh, many of the advances made by the hardware have been nullified by slower software. Yeah, and yeah. I've seen I've seen that argument. Uh, also in I think one of the one video on YouTube is called the 30 million line problem mm -hmm. saying that hardware is actually incredibly fast but we make it very slow with with uh, bloated uh, operating systems and, and and bloated frameworks and uh, bad pro programming practices and all that stuff because we think it's fast enough now but um, but it's true it is fast enough right so it's fast enough for many things so it's I think that is a bit difficult to to find out should you try to make it even faster or not. I mean, then you can run more on the same PC, but uh, if you don't need to run anymore, then maybe it's a waste of time. No, for sure. Uh, you can save a lot of time. So if you go to the cloud and you optimize your code, you will pay less. So the first time in the history, you can actually show that, uh, you know, optimized code saves saves money. Because if, yeah, because if you already purchased the server and uh, it's going to take the power it takes, regardless of, yeah. you know, how fast your application is and you don't run any other applications on the same hardware then yeah why yeah. you're not getting a lot any benefit out of uh, optimizing or even worse or, or even better in serverless world you get to you know uh, pay you are paying for gigabyte second all the time so you actu actually see per call how much you are saving or wasting yeah cool um so you um you, you switch to uh, pascal and 
And then you, opt you optimize Pascal. Yeah, Pascal and then um, some assembly language and also C. I started programming C at the time. Okay. Uh, we mostly did that. I mostly did that in my spare time uh, because uh, we, we did not use C uh, that much during uh, you know, the education. Where you studied? In which town? I studied, uh, it's called Roskilde. So it's not a very big town in, in Denmark. And they Denmark, have a, okay. Yeah, they have a university center there. Then I, uh, yeah, I studied there for my uh, for my bachelor in computer science, and then I I was out working for four years, and then I switched to another university in Copenhagen. Oh, mm -hmm. called the it was a newly opened uh, university at the time, so it's called it's the IT University of Copenhagen. So it's, it's mostly focused on IT stuff and so software development, but also like application design and interaction design and all these kinds of things. So okay, nice. So um so you started so Turo Pascal C what happened then C++ I assume Um no what happened then was Java was released Okay the first versions of Java and uh, our university was among one of the first ones to switch to have part of the education or the computer science education in Java so uh, then I switched to to programming Java And after that, then I started. I started in my first job. That was a uh, in a in a web mm -hmm. in a web company back in '98. Wow! So that was um, a lot of. Uh, I had to learn Active Server Pages and Visual oh. Basic and Visual Basic Script, and I had to learn Perl, and we also did a little bit of Oracle PLSQL. Okay. These kind of uh, scripting scripting languages back then. But PLS code was not as bad. Um, did also a little bit of that um, back in the time. But uh, what was your impression of Java after your experience with C, Turbo Pascal on assembly? I mean, it's a completely different world. Um, yeah, I liked the object-oriented uh, mm -hmm. style of programming because I, at, during one of the courses in university, we had a small course in object-oriented programming and i think we were using some kind of object-oriented pascal it was not delphi but it was something similar to that mm -hmm. so some kind of object-oriented uh, pascal and we made a small adventure game but it was just a, a text adventure game you could walk from room to room and then you had a few actions uh, available in each room and you could drop and take items mm -hmm. and um i really like this object-oriented way of designing an application so After I got used to that or got into that in Java, I was I was uh, hooked to that way of designing applications. So interesting. So I, I didn't go back to to C. I could have maybe gone to C++, but um, I don't know. I think at the time I was probably, once I started working, I had one year in this web company. And then after that, I started working with Java full time. And then I think since then, I spent most of my time just trying to catch up with all the features in Java. Yeah, this is uh, also my story, but um, this uh, catch up with Java. <laughs> and um, so I, I assume, patterns, right? yeah, you started with JDK 1.0, I think, at the university because. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so too. And it's incredible. It's you know, interesting how the university uh, knew about Java. I mean, because, you know, there, there should be some relation between Sun and the university because uh, JDK 1.0 was unknown, actually. Yeah, I, that's a good question because we had books in the books. We had the books uh, in in our you know in the local bookstore there on the university. We Java, Java in a nutshell. 
Yeah, I think it was the it was the Java books, probably Java in a nutshell as well. But I think it was I remember the ones from Sun themselves. You know, from, they had this series called From the Source. Yeah, and I I remember those because they had these uh, some kind of uh, they had a nice nice uh, de nicely designed front. Yeah, exactly. So it was white books, and, white books, and yeah. some kind of uh, silver or something, right? Yeah, it was like uh, exactly. yeah. And uh, yeah, the Java Nutshell was for, by David Flanagan back then. I remember. I think I never met the guy. Uh, interesting. Uh, also, he he wrote one of the first books. Mm -hmm. Interesting because uh, you know you spend lots of time with assembly and C and still like Java. Usually, people who are you no know, down to metal they don't like object oriented programming because they say, "Oh, that is waste of resources." And you are the huge optimizer, and you still like you know object oriented programming. Yeah, I I do. I think um, I I started. Picking up some of the tricks from Martin Thompson back in I think 2011, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with uh, in, instead of just having objects spread out all over memory, you would uh, just have the binary that have the binary data stored sequentially for all these objects in large arrays, and then you could scan over them very very fast. Mm -hmm. And you can still like even even though the data in your application. Uh, that data that is represented or stored in these arrays, even though they are not represented using objects, the rest of your application can still be designed using object-oriented techniques. Mm -hmm. You just need to maybe make some exceptions uh, or deviate from that once for, for the, uh, the, the big amounts of data that you need to process. Mm -hmm. But configuration objects and like file loaders and all that stuff, you can still use object-oriented techniques to get some kind of... Uh, Decent, uh, decent design, I think. Mm -hmm. And why so, you did it for fun, or was it a need, or was it a specific project where you had the requirements? Um, I mean, the performance. Mm -hmm. This, you know, the I idea think, that you are storing everything in an array. No, no, no. Of course not. I think. I think at the time. I wonder what was what was happening at the time. I think I was still very much interested in in performance tuning and trying to get as much out of uh, a single uh, server as possible at the time, even though I was at the time also aware that it did not make a whole lot of sense because mm -hmm. of what we just talked about earlier, that you would anyways typically only run one application per server. Mm -hmm. um, so what were your, your projects? So after your Visual Basic um, enjoyment, so you were back to Java. So which project you spent your time? You know, was it like enterprise project or what technologies? What do you used? Yeah, mostly enterprise uh, type of, of projects. I, my first in my first Java role, we the, the company that I worked for used the Silverstream application. Ah, okay. And and that was before uh, Java Enterprise Edition was standardized. Mm -hmm. So um, so it, it was actually uh, quite advanced. It came completely, you know, with completely with its own. Um, development environment so it had its own ide built in mm -hmm. and um it came shipping with i think it was sitebase database mm -hmm. so that once you would run your application server and then you would automatically get a sitebase database running as well mm -hmm. and then it would it would store your applications inside the database as well that was a little bit of a neat trick um, but so the, apparently that made it easy to to um, version to work 
yeah to work multiple people on the same application and uh, and also to to copy applications from one server to another just copy the entire database i think i remember actually silverstream which company was it was the silverstream and silverstream that i worked for no yeah the the application server no which no. company created the silverstream i think it was called silverstream at the time and okay. then i think i think at some point i am not sure if it was sybase that that um, that bought silverstream but it was acquired by another company mm-hmm um or maybe maybe it was the same company that was making power builder this could be uh, i'm not sure because it was very similar in uh, in 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 design to to power builder just it using... was bought by novel seems like because i found now uh-huh. novel tutorial about silverstream ah okay yeah interesting that sounds that sounds kind of right mm-hmm. and uh this tutorial goes with uh yeah, com SSW was the package structure. And uh the tutorial is about Java Java EE version two. So uh this was after your time, but interesting. Yeah. This is actually the one of the reasons why I really appreciate Java E because there were lots of application servers and you couldn't understand them. They were so different. And if you no know, yeah. J2E came out, so for me it was huge. So okay, cool. Now I learned the API and I don't care about the implementation. So this was uh, huge news for me. And uh, back then it was impossible. So Silverstream, Persistence Power Tier, then uh, there was you know, Borland Application Server, Tenga from WebLogic, there were WebSphere and uh, lots of servers. Yeah, yeah. And there, there were also some that, un- that I think were bought, acquired, and then kind of erased. Yeah. Orion server from Sweden. There was something called Web Objects also. Yeah, this point. was from Apple. And yeah. the interesting part was Web Object. I was a Java one, and uh, and Apple announced that the Web Object application server written in Java, uh, prior to Java one, cost fifty thousand k. This I remember exactly. <laughs> and during the Java one, the, it cost just five hundred euros. And the cool story is, um, years later, I still you know found some uh, developers who really liked the Web Objects from Apple. How about how about there was also this cold fusion, but that was also very different, right? Yeah, uh, this cold fusion was, I think, different. Maybe, maybe I think it was web object from Apple, and cold fusion was like you know a scripting included. So this was like competitor to servlets. I don't think this cold fusion had something to do with Java. They had their own language. Uh huh. Interesting. I didn't know actually uh, that uh, you are you also did enterprise. Uh, I thought you know you are just a Java guy, because I found you on Twitter. And I know your tutorials from time to time. I find you know your tutorials is a huge amount of, of uh, of resource actually of, of, about Java. And recently you wrote something on Twitter, and it appeared on my timeline. It's like we have to talk because I don't think I met you somewhere. And uh, it's always fun, you know. Uh, this is my podcast, the opportunity to misuse podcasts to you know to, to meet people. <laughs> yeah, no, that was it. Was nice. I I think I have seen. I have seen you in my Twitter timeline from time to time. Mm-hmm. I think I have also seen your name. You have been speaking at uh, various conferences also. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have probably seen some of your presentations as well because mm-hmm. your name was known to me. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I kind of had an idea who you were mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. Uh, when when you wrote uh, wrote me on on Twitter. Hey, cool. I have also seen your uh, your YouTube channel as well. Oh, thank you. you are, but. 
So what happened after the Silver Stream? So what's interests me, you know, your, your path. So what were your projects, where you spent your time, and what you do with Java? Uh, after that, after mm-hmm. SilverStream, I um, I was I was. Oh, ex- excuse me. What you built with SilverStream? Maybe was it like you know e-commerce app or what was it? I, the first one of the systems I had working on was um, like a case management system for the uh, the tax court. So not the tax authorities themselves, but in case you complain about your taxes, it goes to a special tax court. Mm-hmm. And they needed a system to manage all these cases that they were, you know, that they were had to adjudicate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was one thing. And another thing I did with Silverstream, I helped doing was um, a logistics system, uh-huh. a system for UPS. Oh, um, okay. In that was in the UK, and I think then after that, I cannot actually remember what more I did with that. I think after that. The consulting company I worked for was acquired, and then they also had a Microsoft department, and then they kind of down-prioritized selling Java consultants a little bit at the time. Mm-hmm. So then I, at some point, I just switched to being a freelance consultant, and I, that was around year 2000. And then I started just working for larger financial uh, organizations, and that was mostly with either WebSphere or WebLogic or Tomcat. Usually these, there were some of them, a few of them were using JBoss at the time. But mm-hmm. yeah. In Denmark, this was your... That was in Denmark, yeah. That was still in Denmark. So you, you are a freelancer since 2000? I actually, last year I, I changed that, yeah, what I okay. was. A freelancer from 2000 to 2021, uh, mostly. But uh, yeah, I am, now I am working a lot with the AWS uh, architecture. Okay. So, and in order to uh, to learn that and learn that, also have some colleagues that know a lot, and uh, and also just to have colleagues in general, it got a little bit boring in the end with all the freelance work. Okay. Then I saw I'm actually now uh, have a, a permanent employment or permanent of we call it just a, a regular job as a mm-hmm. solution architect. Solution yeah. architect. What's yeah, What's funny? Going. The term solution architect appeared maybe in the last three years. Back then, <laughs> yeah. it was just architect, right? So if I hear a solution architect, I always thinking there has to also be a problem architect rather than you know, why solution <laughs> without problems. And I ask at Twitter, like, you know, why you call yourself solution? Because I never heard this. And they say, okay, so, uh, and they someone tried to explain me the difference between architect and solution architect. But uh, so are we solution architects? What's you know the difference? Because we uh, a long time we were just architects from projects. I I have tried to make sense of all these different architects. Uh, okay. Titles as well. Um, I think. I think. I guess the like the general term or like the uh, umbrella term would be like IT architect. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, I think as far as as far as I have experienced, the enterprise architects are mostly working, you know, at very high level. So they they are not okay. super not super technical. Uh, I mean, they can be technical. They can have a technical background, but their work is not so technical. It's mostly looking across the all the systems in the entire enterprise and seeing how do we get into this system that we are now okay. buying buying from vendor A, how do we get that to integrate with our single sign-on and this other system that we bought from vendor B. So it's okay. like all the big lines. And then I think solution architects are mostly 
it's like a, a I think it's a, like a step below that. So you are focused on like a single solution within the enterprise, but not the entire enterprise uh, landscape or IT landscape. And I think a solution architect role is probably also more of a, a design role and less technical, but I mean, in, in Kiko, we are very much hands-on with AWS, but yeah. I think many solution architects are still work mostly at a specification level. Okay. And then I think we get down, down to the the software or system architects. That's when it starts getting technical. You need to really understand what's going on there in order to okay. design the, the architecture. But I mean, we can have a, a ton of layers uh, of these architects. Uh, no, but, but the sure. solution I think is new. It never appeared before. So I was uh, curious why now, right? Because it was never, that, that, that there was never such a term. And I remember at uh, back then, you know, as the architecture started, we made the distinction between architect and designer. And the architect was the person who, you know, had to say, okay, this has to be, this is my idea, this systems communicate in this way. And then the design, designer or uh, provided, you know, the design of the system, showed the architect how to do this. So for me, it sounds like the system architect and solution architects were a moral designer. So I think I never was an enterprise architect then. Also, I called myself enterprise architect. So it is like the first few hours I was enterprise architect, then uh, solution architect, and then next day, usually, you know, the system architect because we always had to code a little bit. So, um, yeah. yeah, cool. I think actually, my in my experience, the best solutions usually come from the architects that are able to uh, understand the system yeah. in in all its layers, right? Yeah. Even even down to the hardware, but and also up to understanding all the way up to the business, understand what's going on and what direction the business is going. And of course, you cannot understand everything perfectly, but if you have a have like a, a good uh, foundational understanding in each of these layers, then usually the solutions seem to make more sense to me at least. Okay. So now, um, why you have so many tutorials on the webpage? And by the way, you dis- redesigned your webpage, I think, right? So it looked a little bit differently. It, yeah, it, it did. Um, why I have so many tutorials? I remember, in, I think I've always wanted to run my own company at some point, I think. And that is one of the reasons I started as a freelancer. And then at some point in the early days of the internet, mm-hmm. I started listening to all these uh, different voices in in the uh, in the startup space. When I think that once, uh, I mean, startups, web startups were popular already. You know, from probably a few years after the dot com crash, mm-hmm. they started getting popular again. I think in the beginning, I did not feel confident enough in my programming skills to be able to do that. But then later on, they the people like what is his name? Jason Calacanis and uh, um, yeah, I, I can't remember the other. Anyways, they started talking a lot about this, and I thought, okay, well, talk about you know content creation as a business. And ah. I thought, okay, what kind of content can I can I write? And then I started looking around, and well, I realized, well, I know how to to program, so maybe I can uh, start writing a blog and see what comes out of that. And what happened? Well, um, a lot of things happened um, over the years. The the block grew reasonably popular. It's not it's not as popular anymore because 
there are there's there's so many uh, competing uh, tech mm-hmm. blocks today. Mm-hmm. So, but at at the time when it peaked, I had around 1.6 million page views per month. Okay, and so people were were happy to read that. I think what I tried to do different from the other blocks at the time was that I I tried to make them a lot more concise and yet go into more details yes. than many of the other blogs. And so the way I try to make them concise is by cutting out the introduction. You know, so mm-hmm. At the time, many of the articles on the popular websites, such as the server side, mm-hmm. they would start with like two, three, four paragraphs of just, uh, if you are in a, this situation, then this might be interesting, and then that might be interesting. And then at, you know, two, three sections down, they get to what they actually want to talk about. And I would just usually just cut that away and just skip directly to. If you need to use uh, Java collections, then it consists of the following constructs, you know, just directly to it. So that was what I tried to do different at the time. And then as the traffic grew, I started putting Google ads on it and see, you know, if I, if I could make it a business. Uh, but at the same time, as you know, I, I got a lot of there were I got a lot of competitors. Then the ad space online also kind of collapsed, and you can see many of the of the newspapers today they have a hard time mm-hmm. making any any money from online advertising. And so, at but some you could, point could earn some money again. with the ad space. You could earn something. I did. Yeah, I did earn something. Um, I did earn something at there was there was a time I actually I I did. I did spend some time full time trying to make a living from this. Mm-hmm. And at some point I was just below breaking even, right? I could okay. just barely pay my, my expenses, but but at a salary that would maybe be the same you would get in the supermarket, right? So very low salary. <laughs> yeah. But then it started going down again from there. And uh, at some point, I think I spent another two years or so fighting, trying to get it back up. But at some point I had to just give up and go back to, to work normally again. Okay. So, so that's why I, uh, I have, uh, have that many tutorials is because I tried to make it a business at some point. But, uh, mm-hmm. What I uh, remembered right now, because you mentioned at the beginning an array of objects and I all, I, I, the entire time, you know, in my background thread, I was thought, you know, I know it from somewhere. I think, you remember the disruptor pattern? Yeah. So this was like a ring of byte arrays, and uh, you could actually allocate new memory. And you, this, uh, you also used that. I I did not use it directly, but I studied it a lot. Uh-huh. And I think uh, one of Martin Thompson's uh, presentations that mention the disruptor pattern also mentions these, um, um, the, like the time differences between when you access memory sequentially and mm-hmm. if you access memory randomly. I think he has he had some benchmark in one of these presentations showing that if you access every cell of a one gigabyte uh, array mm-hmm. and you access them sequentially and you do the same thing with that array but access them randomly. So you access mm-hmm. all the cells but you access them in a random order. Then the speed difference was... Uh, was a 90, wow. 90x speed difference. Mm-hmm. So that's when I realized, okay, there's a lot of performance to gain from accessing data mm-hmm. that is stored sequentially. And the same is true on disk. 
Mm-hmm. I know that the uh, disruptor was used, I think, in Log4j2 internally. I look at this as, okay, for my project is less interesting because the uh, the memory has to live somewhere, right? And if you are on application server or in the cloud, you have usually two clusters. It's not that easy to have sub- something uh, in memory which survives all the requests. So this is mostly interesting for high-performance apps which run all the time in a kind of singleton. And I lived in a completely different world. For me, there was no singletons. Actually, we're forbidden. We have no load balancers, always application servers. So and uh, for me, I'm also spending some time right now in AWS. And you know, transition for application server to AWS was pretty easy because uh, it 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 they are exactly the same concepts actually if you you know if you we were not supposed to write you know from egbs to a local store and uh you shouldn't you know start threads and synchronization and if you follow that if you look at aws lambda or even fargate i mean you're good right Uh, the the only difference is everyone back then cursed and said okay enterprise java is stupid it's very restrictive and now you say okay now we are in the cloud so we have to be restrictive right so this is the only difference yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Uh, when you do many of these traditional um, enterprise applications and, mm-hmm. and with a lot of business logic in, uh, most of the time you need uh, hor- horizontal scalability more than vertical scalability. Right? Mm-hmm. So, and and as soon as you have more than one um, application server, then the game changes. Right? Yep. Like you say, you cannot just store everything in memory anymore and yeah. if you cannot unless you, you you use something like sticky session uh, load balancing yeah but this is maybe you can do problematic and yeah and and this is i guess is is almost impossible to do with the serverless right with lambdas because you cannot control which mm-hmm. lambda uh, instance that uh, you could but it was slower no you will have to access from lambda um the elastic cache or something like this, but you will lose, you know, the, the, the entire true. performance. You, you could do this, but this will be orders of magnitude slower than random access, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, also interesting, um, I think last year or this year, early this year or la- uh, last year, um, I delivered either keynote or session. And uh, what I did is I compared EGBs to Lambdas and tried to explain Lambdas, AWS Lambdas with EGBs programming model. And the interesting, interesting part, what, what happened then, uh, I, I realized they are almost identical. If you think about this, we have yeah. also experience with EGBs, right? So we were uh, concerned. Especially the session beans, right? Session bean, yeah. Yeah. Session bean. Because, you know, there was cold start time. So there was an init, init pool size, you know, to prevent the cold startup, which mattered at the beginning of, of Java. Then we had, you know, the max pool size, which you could say, okay, you should not scale more than this. And um, and uh, the uh, the only difference is that the EJBs run in threads on an application server, and AWS Lambda runs in processes. You know, every thread is a process, so this is the main difference. But anything else is actually identical, which is uh, also interesting. And uh, I also in my projects, I explain this to my developers, or my developers, developers in my team, and they really like it. So they say, okay, you are right. Actually, that so it changes the entire perspective. So if you if you see it differently. Lambda seems like a toy, but if you you know look at this from this perspective, it is actually more powerful than anything else because every Lambda can have up to 10 gigs of RAM and 60 CPUs, if you like. So this is actually incredible, right? So and if you would run a container, then you have 6 CPUs and 10 gigs inside a container. And in Lambda, you have the entire power per function invocation. So it's co- this is completely different. Um, yeah, interesting. I, 
And, you know, I think I think I definitely one of the most interesting uh, technologies or like spaces of technologies on AWS is the, the whole serverless space. Mm-hmm. I find that really interesting also with the serverless uh, databases and uh, mm-hmm. and like serverless batch processing and all that stuff. So it just starts up when it's needed. And other than that, it's it's not running. Exactly. I think it's um, especially for like small startups or, or like you know, big, uh, like just companies that have workloads that don't have to run all the time and all that stuff. It's, I think it's really an interesting technology. And then it can also scale to, you know, when you have a lot of, yeah. a lot of workload and, and stuff like that. But then you get into new performance challenges such as the cold startup time, right? What's interesting, um, so let's talk about AWS now, um, because um, what I spend my time the last three years is I'm migrating actually application servers to the cloud. And uh, if I do it, I say, okay, there should be added value. And if you look at the cloud, the only that added value is, in, from my perspective, is serverless. Because, uh, you know, if you run the Kubernetes cluster once again in the cloud, there is no difference. It will be more expensive, but no added value. But uh, with the serverless, what really changes the game is the invoice, right? Because the management, they see at the end of the month exactly how, how much money we spent for use cases, actually. And uh, this is really interesting. So this is for me, actually, this is the game changer, not necessarily, you know, the scalability, because um, you mentioned that um, I scaled uh, ho- horizontally. It was not about scaling. It it was always about uh, high availability, for instance. So uh, recently, you know, uh, there was the question, what we do with um, with static assets on AWS? And um, so I said, okay, of course, we store it in S3. But uh, there was a an, an, another idea to run Nginx. Okay, I, I don't get it. And, and and even if we would run Nginx, we will actually have to run two Nginxes because if one dies, uh, then you know we are offline. And um, and uh, so we always had two instances and one server scaled. Um, I think for most enterprise applications, one server would be even better because you could then then you know apply your tricks with uh, disruptor yeah. and you could cache stuff if you have two application servers it was actually worse but we had to do this in some projects because of uh, disaster recovery right so if the server dies uh, how long does it take to to boot it this was the only the only problem right yeah and and the lambdas are just really really great there right because yeah. they they just boot themselves when you need them yeah and now cold start as uh, cold start time because you you mentioned that and actually I, I delivered yesterday a session an online session and there was also a question so um what i did i actually deployed in real time real time a java application to aws and uh, if you use microprofile with jakarta e so you have an app you know with um, dependency injection application scoped a view beans injected and uh, you deploy it with um, micronode or quarkus it boots around two seconds, the f- very first cold start. And s- and subsequent uh, invocations yesterday were 10 milliseconds. And if uh, it is unrealistic, I mean, because this was Hello World, but if you do something more, it is uh, with JSON, for instance, you know, JSON B, JSON P without any optimizations. I see times 100 milliseconds response times for uh, enterprise app is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I now, mean... Now, yeah, but, but listen, with Lambda, the cool story is I don't have to care about VPCs and subnets and NAT gateways. Uh, it just runs without the overhead. And uh, this is you no know, highly, I would say, underestimated 
how complex it can become, right? So set up an application load balancer with security groups and, and, and HTTP listeners and NAT gateways or whatever and uh, public and, and, and private subnet and, you know, CIDRs. It is fun, but with Lambda, such things doesn't exist. So I have to say the serverless reminds me really about application servers. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I just worked on a, on a project where we also used a lot of Lambdas. And we also used um, various different, you know, Amazon has a lot of different triggers that can mm -hmm. trigger your Lambda. Mm -hmm. so what are the asynchronous Lambdas you use, right? I use the behind HTTP API gateway mostly for migrations. And the triggers are the asynchronous Lambdas. So there are two kinds of Lambdas. Yeah. And we, we used uh, like triggers, like when a file was uploaded to S3, then that would trigger uh, a Lambda that would mm -hmm. then verify the files and see if all the files for a certain trip had been been uploaded and all that stuff. So I like how Lambdas are, are also very well integrated into the entire AWS ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. easy to to make something somewhere else trigger a Lambda. Mm -hmm. But you already are one step ahead because what you are talking about, all resources on AWS, they are emitting events. And you can subscribe to these events with Lambdas. So what I'm doing in the migration project is a step before. We just migrate the old Java code, Java E code, oh, yeah. and package with Quarkus, and there is there's this exactly the same source code. And the Quarkus listens to HTTP API events, uh, which are emitted by the HTTP API gateway or application load balancer. Both are working, or function URL. And for you, it's no difference. You can use you know, your old programming model with dependency injection. It looks like... So yesterday, I... I, I show my uh, the attendees uh, old code. It was twelve years old, and uh, without any modification, it could run us on AWS Lambda. And it's interesting. Um, the only the only restriction is if you would like you know to have a Lambda which is accessed privately. This is what uh, you know hybrid clouds via Direct Connect. Then you have to run it in a VPC. But it's still simpler than the other options because you only need the VPC and subnet and not you know the entire thing. Interesting. So I didn't expect it that you're also doing AWS these days a lot. No, I, I haven't been talking much about it yet. I, it's, I've been working with it for uh, working here for like one and a half years. And part of the time, I've also been doing some some Java and Kafka consulting. Uh, on ah, okay. Of course. So, yeah. So it's it's not only AWS that I work with here, but it's, it's mostly AWS, but mm -hmm. also sometimes Java. Yeah, so it's 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 so it's it's a huge uh, ecosystem to to learn. I think this entire AWS platform. So, and I think if you if you come at it from a perspective where you have a specific workload to run, then you can it's maybe a little bit easier to focus in and learn just the things you need to run this workload. But we are an, an AWS consulting house, so so every time we change. Uh, Clients then the clients need are using maybe some new AWS services, so there's a lot to learn in a very short time. So I haven't I haven't been writing much about it yet. I've mm -hmm. been mostly just busy catching up. I I I'm thinking about abstractions recently and then architecture. So on premise, you remember you also spent some time with Java. We spend huge amount of time, you know, abstracting from products, databases message queues. So this was actually the main idea because it's like, what happens when, you know, the company switches from Oracle to DB2, then uh, we have rewrite everything is too expensive. Now, what I don't understand, so what many companies are doing, they are applying the same logic to clouds. And uh, this costs a huge amount of money 
because if you start you know to abstract from the cloud you don't have any benefits from the cloud you're paying for the cloud and you have to implement the abstractions so um what i what i actually doing in my projects i'm fully now using the cloud and then you know the entire design is simple but um if you would have to migrate from AWS to Azure, usually it's not a huge problem because if you you know, compare, let's say, Fargate to uh, ACI or uh, Azure App Service, or if you com- com- compare AWS Lambda with Azure Function, they are very similar if you're not abstracting. So I think you know a, a developer could migrate this in a day without any problems. The huge problem with that, um, or where you know the problem is, is identity management is completely different. Networking is different. So this is where you know, uh, it's overlooked that actually this is the problem, not necessarily, you know, uh, abstracting from the cloud-specific services. And you mentioned Kafka. This is why I, you know, uh, because I also uh, do Kafka a lot. But in the cloud, for instance, if you have the choice, I would prefer Kinesis, for instance, for that reasons. Because Kinesis is serverless. There's also Kafka, serverless Kafka. But, you know, in Kinesis, I say, here's the topic. And I, in one second later, I have the topic. If you yeah. set up Kafka in the cloud, you wait 40 minutes for the managed Kafka and the serverless Kafka is a bit expensive, I would say, right? So um, what I do, I have actually two architecture styles. They are complete opposite. So I, I behave different in the cloud and also on-premise. So you, you see the point? So what, what's your idea? So what, what are your observations? Um, I, I completely agree with you uh, with the sentiment that if you use the cloud and you try to abstract everything away, Mm-hmm. then first of all, you spend a lot of time working on these abstractions yeah. uh, to get them to be uh, good enough to, to uh, represent both one cloud and the other cloud. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you also end, uh, risk ending up only being able to use the, the, the services or kinds of services that are present in more than one cloud. Mm-hmm. So I think... If you want to have like a completely abstracted or like cloud independent architecture, you probably need to go with something more Kubernetes, uh, more basic, like with you know virtual machines or Docker containers and Kubernetes and mm-hmm. stuff like that, which you know is almost the same yeah. when you change to another cloud. But then you you cannot use you cannot easily use something like DynamoDB, for instance. Exactly. Or, Cosmo maybe exactly. DB or, and and I even though these databases might see feel a little bit similar across um, different clouds, they are probably not entirely yep. um, similar. And yeah, so I think f- personally, I am a little bit um, I don't know how you say torn between. On, on the one side, just say, yeah, just choose a cloud and then you go all in on that cloud and, mm-hmm. and like you can really get some, um, you can really do something very fast with, with the AWS and Lambdas and DynamoDB, right? Mm-hmm. And if, you, if, you, if you even just make your Lambdas in, in JavaScript or Python or something like that, then a lot of these uh, single Lambda transaction style functions, they, they don't require that much business logic really. So they are maybe like, Two three pages and that's it. But it's cool. What do you have to do? You have to measure. Java is faster than JavaScript. So if you run the lambdas yeah. as Java or um, instead of uh, JavaScript or Python, you will save ten to twenty percent, which is actually a huge amount. Yeah. And uh, on AWS, we just you, you, you are not using GraalVM. 
the Coretto is just fine because it optimizes, you know, step-by-step um, step the code and um, works actually perfect. And for the infrastructure as code, we use CDK, so uh, the Java part, which is very, very lean. And the cool story is um, you can combine this with Maven. So, right, so you could, what you can do is you can create your own construct like, you know, Jakob's microservice and you say, you no know, add, 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 and you are done. And behind the scenes, the entire magic happens. And in larger companies, we are st starting, uh, we are storing our, or not storing, we are deploying the, our custom constructs to Maven Nexus and uh, teams can reuse it. And this is actually, if you compare this with Terraform, let's say, with Terraform, you will have to write, you know, orders of magnitude more code to achieve the same. So this is, uh, yeah. yeah, where I spend the time. And this is really, uh, it's actually, a, uh, it is not simple because you still have to understand the APIs. But if you know the APIs, it's very fast to write as a Java developer. Ah, uh, yeah, you mean the uh, the AWS APIs? Yeah, the CDK, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cloud Development Kit from AWS. And on Asia, I tend to use Bicep. This is a, a common language from Asia. But, um, and yeah, and in some projects, you know, management decided to use Terraform with the hope that uh, they are multi-cloud, which, you know, they are not because the resources are so, so different on Asia, on AWS, that you cannot abstract it with Terraform. You can, maybe you learn the syntax once, but this is all you got. Yeah, yeah. As soon as you need to make a call to, to one service, then you will see that the, uh, the interface is different. Yeah, exactly. Know, uh, from the different clouds and the way you represent identity and... Mm -hmm. And uh, so which service are you using? You are spending your time with Fargate now? No, I, um, my previous project was actually a mix of just uh, lambdas written in Python, and then there were some some Python applications that were running on virtual machines. Okay, and they were running in a, in a batch environment, so we would submit batch jobs to okay. to a queue. And then Amazon Batch would start up these uh, these virtual machines whenever. Was SQS, I guess, right? SQS or Kinesis? Yeah, it was SQS, mm -hmm. and then um, yeah, that would trigger you know the startup of the of the batch environment. Mm -hmm. What does the cold start with Python? The cold start with Python is not very high, but uh, it, it's it's like it's it's under a hundred milliseconds. But it. What I have seen from uh, from several of these people that are measuring these cold startup times is that it depends a lot on the size of the it depends a lot on the size of the application. You can get Java to have a cold start of I think is it like less than five hundred milliseconds if yeah. you if you uh, do not have a lot of if your code base is very small. Yes. So so if you use a big framework like Spring or something like that, then obviously that increases your code start time but if you have only exactly the code you need you only use um, amazon's own apis and you just have a few java classes that do exactly what you need them to do for that particular lamp and then you can get it below 500 milliseconds and the trick is and if you use micronaut or quarkus they even optimize further so you could have you know our old programming model and what quarkus and micronaut are doing they are they are dropping out reflection there are no class loaders they optimize the bytecode so it starts really fast okay that's that's pretty cool. I, I've also seen um, um, people compile their applications to, to native, mm -hmm. and then um, the cold startup time is also reduced quite quite a lot. And if you don't like startup, you can always run, you know, with um, provision concurrency. So you're paying fifteen dollars a month. That's true. But uh, and then you have never ever a cold start for one lambda. Um, and uh, what's interesting is if you do this with provision concurrency. 
the uh, all the calls become a little bit cheaper. So if you have a lot of traffic going on, maybe you will even save money. Okay, I I wasn't I wasn't aware of uh, how big a difference it makes to mm-hmm. to run in practice with uh, with that s- switched on. Cool. So Jakob, it was really nice to meet you. So the first time we met after you know twenty five years of Java. So it's amazing. We are actually we look like 15, right? And we still have <laughs> a Java Java experience. Uh, where people can hire you? I mean, if someone you know offers you a huge amount of money, you you will still become freelancer immediately, right? I guess. So uh, I think your website is um, is yenkov.com. That's true. Yen- yenkov.com. Mm-hmm. Oh, J E N K K O V dot com. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if there are any contact details directly in there, but otherwise, I guess the easiest way would be to find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Yeah. What is Twitter? What is your Twitter handle? It's just at J Jenkov. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah, and I guess in in LinkedIn, I guess you can just search for my name. I guess I will show up somewhere in there. Cool. So it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was very nice to uh, to talk to you too. Uh, yeah. This is uh, actually I, I kind of miss having some talks like this where uh, we just have time to to hear what people have been doing and, and like people's interest and all that stuff. In, yeah, in we should. Uh, I can reinvite you back and we can have a chat. You know about AWS, your experiences. So it's also interesting for me what you are doing. So that would be cool. That yeah, we do it. So cool. ne- next year we schedule another meeting and have a talk about Perfect. AWS. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Thank you.